everybody's finding their seat, let's uh, <coughs> review the uh, announcements. <coughs> uh, Pastors Conference coming up in a l- little less than three weeks now, March 12th through 14th. We'll need volunteers for different things, such as uh, front door, back door, registration. You can volunteer through the Dean Bible Ministries website. And um, if you register, and even those who are at the church here and will be here, whether you're here once, whether you're here the whole time, you need to register so we have that information so we can contact you about volunteering, things of that nature. And there will also be sign-up sheets in the fellowship hall. Yesterday they had a work day in here and cleaned things up, and I can tell that they did. And then also um, trips to Israel are up to just under 30, and I think the um, uh, trips to the Bible uh, Bible Museum are full. So those trips are good to go. We have room for three or four more to go to Israel if anybody wants to go. We will be going to some usual places. We'll be going to some new places. Uh, I went to the dig, fantastic dig at Magdala in 2016, two years ago, which is on the way from Tiberias to um, uh, Nafginasar, where they have the old boat, the first century fishing boat that was dug out of the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And so it's right there. If any of you remember when we come in from uh, the Valley of Megiddo, we hit a T intersection and turn left to go to Nafginasar, and Magdala is right there. And it's, they, it's fantastic. They've really discovered some great things there. And that's just one of several new things. So that's going to be a great trip. <clears throat> Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then we can, uh, then I will open in prayer. We need to pray, didn't get this on the list, Sandy. But Dr. Meisinger is supposed to have surgery tomorrow, I believe. It's either tomorrow or it's next Friday on his back. Uh, Part of the problem that he's had, why he hasn't been able to walk well, has to do with uh, the vertebrae there being sort of uh, fused together, nothing separating them, and they have a procedure where they can inject some sort of uh, whiz-bang new form of cement or concrete or something that will separate those and keep them separate, and then he's going to be able to run faster than a speeding bullet and jump tall buildings in a single bound and all kinds of other things. So his voice has sounded better in the last three or four months than I've heard him in three or four years. So he's quite optimistic and hopeful about this surgery, so be in prayer for that. Let's uh, bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we're so very grateful that you have provided such a wonderful salvation for us, that you love us and you've provided for us and you've given us such an incredible wealth of information in your word. And we just barely scratch the surface. We are often just too distracted and too busy to really spend the time that we ought and that we should in your word. And Father, we need to spend hours and hours every week just letting your word uh, cleanse our soul. Father, we're thankful for your grace, your goodness, your promises, your provisions, all the things that we have in Christ. And Father, we pray for Dr. Meisinger, pray for this surgery, pray that it will uh, do what they hope that it will do, and that he will be able to uh, not have the pain, the difficulty in walking that he's had, and that he will uh, be able to return to a more active life. 
Now, Father, we pray that uh, tonight as we study your word that you would uh, strengthen us in your word, that it fortifies our soul and protects us against the uh, sin nature that wars against the soul, that protects us against the uh, external attacks that we may endure, but primarily it's that uh, evil of the sin nature, the enemy within that seeks to destroy us. And Father, we pray that we might understand your word and apply it diligently. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. Still in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And what we're looking at tonight is going to be in verse 3, where we look at these sins that war against the soul, these sins that war against the soul. Let me remind you of the context beginning in 4.1. Peter reaches a conclusion as he has been talking about this uh, very important uh, principle that we are to um, we are to be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, and that we it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, and so we are to uh, focus upon obedience, and that's what he means when he says, "Arm yourselves with the same mind." It is, as we studied before, it is a resolve in the mind. It's a focus. It's a mindset that is the mindset of Christ, and so we fortify ourselves. And that mind of Christ is First Corinthians chapter two, verse fourteen says, uh, "Excuse me, two sixteen that that we have." the mind of Christ. It's the scripture teaches us how Jesus thinks and what the content of his thinking was. And as we have studied in uh, our study on Matthew on Sunday morning, when our Lord was on the cross and he cries out, screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? That is more than just a citation of that question in the first verse of Psalm 22. But indeed, as was typical of Hebrew uh, writers at that time in a Hebrew scripture, if you're quoting something, quoting a verse, you don't say Psalm 22 because they hadn't numbered the Psalms yet. What you do is you cite the first line. That's the title for the Psalm. Just as in Hebrew, the title for Genesis is Bereshit, which is the first word in Genesis 1-1, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when Jesus cited Psalm 22-1, he's citing the whole Psalm, not just that verse. The mind of Christ is Scripture, and that Scripture is what fortifies and strengthens our soul. Someone asked me, as I was comparing this to 1 Peter 2.11, where earlier in the epistle, Peter said to abstain, which means to stay away from and not to engage in fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. There are lusts that are not fleshly. Fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, would be uh, specifically those sins that are related to uh, sexual sins, sins of the body. And we'll look at those in this list that we have in in verse 3. But somebody asks, what does it mean to war against the soul? Can sin destroy the soul? Well, sin's not going to annihilate the soul. I don't mean that. But sin can have a victory and a conquest of the soul so that it it can uh, wipe out uh, a person's mentality. Uh, it begins because if you're a believer, it destroys your fellowship with God. You're no longer able to walk by means of the Spirit. You have to walk according to the sin nature, and therefore one sin leads to another and leads to another. And as you continue to sin, those sins mount up, and they feed off of each other and create a matrix of carnality and it creates a black hole in the soul where you, your, your thinking just goes down and down as it is dominated uh, by sin. And once you break that fellowship with God, then we're no longer able to serve God. We're no, able, no longer able to fulfill his plan. And so it uh, completely distorts, uh, distorts our life and, and our thinking and distracts us from God's plan. As we continue in carnality... It warps our thinking. How does it warp our thinking? 
when you're operating on the sin nature, what is it that I have taught is the core orientation of the sin nature? Hmm? It's the self. It's me. It's arrogance. It's self-absorption. And the more self-absorbed a person is, uh, the more they are distorted in their view of the world. Everything operates around them. And when you see somebody who is going through grief or somebody who has been uh, injured and where that it becomes the focus of their thinking, everything becomes about them. They, they have to deal with their pain. And, um, and that's something similar. When we are in sin, it's all about us. We have to find, as a result of sin, we have to find a, a solution of stability and hope because that's lost. Think back to what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. They have everything they could possibly hope for. They have a relationship with God which fills them with meaning and purpose in life. There is a harmony, a richness, a love, a peace, a stability that none of us can can ever imagine that was theirs. And when they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and died spiritually, that was lost. Their souls were plunged into slavery from freedom, slavery to a new corruption in their soul that plunged them into darkness. And the result of that emotionally was fear. How do we know that? Because when God... We're told that God came to the garden as he did every day to walk with them. They heard the sound of God and were told they ran and they hid. Not only did they run and hide, but they became self-conscious of their sin and that something had changed and they realized that they were naked. Before, that did not matter, didn't enter in, but now it does. And so they feel like they have to cover it up, so they made garments for themselves. They know they have a problem. They've lost all of this wonderful health and vibrance and robustness that was part of the real life that they had in their relationship with God, and now it's just gone in a in a half second, it disappeared. And they're trying to find something to replace that, to, to, to bring it back, to create a facade that they still have it. And, and trust me, sewing together some fig leaves isn't going to do it. And it didn't do it for them. And so they they're still have this orientation of fear, but when they hear the voice of God in the garden, it says they hid because they were afraid. And this is the basic orientation of man. He is afraid. He is insecure. He knows that his world has become unstable and that he is trying desperately to restore stability and meaning and purpose. And he can only do that by focusing on the uh, finite things of creation. And that this is what eventually leads to idolatry. idolatry. This is the progression that we read in Romans 1.18 and following. As they professed themselves to be wise, they became fools, and then God allowed them to go through several stages of degradation and deterioration as they continue to walk down that path of rebellion towards God. All of that is what happens to someone's soul that gets trapped in the straitjacket of the sin nature. And we're all born that way. That's what spiritual death is. And until we are released from that, doesn't mean the straitjacket goes away. But that straitjacket is still there, but we can get released from that only happens through what the Bible calls the baptism of the, sin, of the sin nature. I mean, it's baptism by the Holy Spirit when our sin nature is, is um, the power is released when we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So what happens with sin when we let it go is that it warps our thinking so that our mind is corrupted. Our mentality is corrupted. We're not thinking God's thoughts after them. We're trying to find these thoughts on our own without standing on a stable 
platform of the ultimate truth of God. It distorts our values. That's our conscience so that we no longer know, know right from wrong. And it's basically derived on the basis of various things such as pragmatism and uh, trying to uh, uh, things we may learn from what other people do, things of that nature. It also seriously impacts our emotions. And this is what happens. This is what leads to emotional problems. And those emotional problems and what we call mental problems that causes are the result of sin and carnality. That doesn't mean that they don't have some ameliorating consequences that uh, are some some um, related consequences that impact the physiology of human beings. It changes chemistry of our bodies. It it it, it produces different kinds of. Uh, Chemicals and hormones, these things get out of balance, and one thing leads to another. And next thing you know, we have what people call mental illness. Well, that's a, that's a misnomer. An illness is something that you catch that has nothing to do with your volition. It's not a sickness. It's a sin. But it starts because in your mind you have given yourselves over to the lusts of the flesh, which destroy mentality. And so people can can try to gain a form of stability through self-discipline and through learning good manners and learning uh, various protocols of how to live. But ultimately, that is just a, a, a straw, a grasping at straws to recover from the reality of sin. So this is how it wars against the soul. It creates habits, habits of thought. These habits of thought are formed before your conscience, conscious of those habits of thought. When you're one, two, and three, as you begin to think and you begin to grasp for things, thinking that's going to give you some happiness and meaning, those thoughts are formed long before you develop a strong, rational basis for thinking. And so it creates these habits that later on become destructive to our spiritual life after we're saved. All of these things distract us from God. They distract us from our spiritual life. And when these sins are left unchecked in our life, then it leads to further negative volition. It leads to increased arrogance and self-absorption, and it leads to fragmentation of the soul. This is what James refers to in James chapter 1 as being a double-minded man. And the Greek word is dysukos. Di means two. Sukas means soul. It's a two-souled person. He's fragmented his soul because of sin and failure in the midst of testing and adversity. It, it crushes his, his soul. So this is what Peter is talking about. And we see this diagrammed in our sin nature. We'll come back to this, so I want to review it. We have two areas on the top we have area of strength, our human good. When we produce morality, we can do that through self-discipline. We can do that by, by learning systems of ethics, systems of manners that we uh, discipline ourselves to carry out. And the result of that is it can produce a measure of stability. These are not the sins of the flesh that war against the soul. But then on the other end, we have personal sins. These are the, this is the area of weakness that produces sins and the area of mental attitude sins, and then uh, sins of the tongue, and then sins, uh, overt sins. And we'll study, see those today. And they people trend towards asceticism and legalism, which leads to moral degeneracy, that these people major in human good. The biblical example are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious, ethical, moral leaders of Israel. Then on the other side, you have the licentious crowd. They're lascivious. They reject morality. They believe in a relative morality. This was exhibited by the uh, tax-collectors and the prostitutes. Uh, Lascivious people and antinomians are easy to witness to because they know that they're in trouble. It's the other crowd, the moral crowd, that doesn't think they're in trouble. They think that they've been good enough to impress God. And in, in my experience as a pastor, the hardest people to witness to are the religious people who are moral and ethical 
and who think they have done well. The people who have a background of, uh, of, of sin, uh, overt sins, these are easy. To, they, when you say you're a sinner, you need God's help, they'll say amen. They know it. They, they, they understand that. And the lascivious, licentious crowd is much easier to deal with. The lusts that drive us, for example, you have power lust, approbation lust, and sexual lust, social lust, money lust, the lust for things, materialism. Those are just some of the lust patterns that we have. This is what's being talked about. But the command that we find in First Peter is a quote from the Old Testament as he's directing this to Jews who have been saved. He reminds them that the mandate from the Old Testament is still true. They are to be holy because God is holy. That is living a life set apart to him. And so this is the contrast between the life that they should have and the life that characterized their past. And their past was not a past that was characterized by uh, the orthodoxy of Jewish uh, uh, legalistic uh, orthodoxy of the orthodoxy of the rabbinical Judaism of the second temple period, but they had assimilated to the Gentile population. And as we'll see, Gentile is not a synonym for unbeliever, even though the Gentiles might be unbelievers, but it is, it is this culture. You have the Jewish legalistic culture, you had the Gentile culture, but as, as a believer in Christ, you are neither Jew nor Gentile. You are now united in the body of Christ. So Peter comes to his challenge here, and he says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Now, he doesn't, he's using a, an editorial we there, uh, identifying with his subjects, but he was always an orthodox, uh, tended towards legalistic observer of the law. And so when he talks about Gentiles, as I studied last time, this refers to simply non-Jews. That's not a synonym for believers. And we went through this. He talks about Gentiles also earlier in 1 Peter 2.12 and talks about how they should have their conduct honorable among the Gentiles. I quoted from Arnold Fruchtenbaum simply because it is typical of those in covenant theology and uh, um, those who hold to replacement forms of theology that um, that <clears throat> these are not just um, that that they use it according to them in this quote here that they are uh, the term Gentiles refers not to people who are not Jews but to people who are not Christians. And so this is uh, based on their assumption that Christians are the new people of God. They have replaced Israel. And what, the, um, what Peter's emphasizing is now as saved Jews, they have a richer heritage. Not only the heritage that they have newly acquired in Christ, but also certain uh, certain rights that they have as Jews under the Abrahamic uh, covenant. So this is still applies to them as it does to us, that we are to live a life distinct and separate to serve God. So these are the sins that are mentioned here. When he says in past lifetime we did the will of the Gentiles, he says we walked, and then he lists these sins. Now, the term walking in the scripture is often used to describe a person's conduct or a person's lifestyle, how they lived day by day, step by step, moment by moment. That's the, uh, that's the metaphor here, that they lived uh, step by step or day by day. And so they were uh, characterized by the same trends as the Gentile pagan culture that surrounded them. So we have various sins that are listed here. We have seven, or six rather, uh, lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Sort of sounds like a frat party, doesn't it? Uh, but and there are a lot of similarities 
Uh, they don't call them Greeks for nothing. Okay, so here's the list of the terms that are used in Greek. Uh, Asogeia, which is simply put sensuality, it's an overt sin. Epithumia is lust, that's a mental attitude sin. Oina flugia is a term for drunkenness, and this is an overt sin. Komas is a word for carousing. And that's having a definitely, I mean, just the same thing it does in in um, in our common English. It's just going out and, and getting drunk and doing whatever you want to do without any restraint. Uh, that is an overt sin. Patas is a hapax legomena, which means it's only used one time in the New Testament, but it refers to a drinking party. Now, a case has been made that a lot of this was related to the Dionysian and uh, festivals, the Bacchanals. You know, Bacchus is the Latin term, Dionysius was the Greek term, same God, he's the God of wine. And the way you became spiritual was you imbibed of the product of the God, which was wine. And when you got drunk enough, then you would have the, the God of wine would enter into you, and sometimes he would speak through you in what was called glossolalia or uh, these ecstatic utterances that became confused as tongues. And that's the problem in Corinth. They're used to some sort of glossolalic utterance uh, in their worship of the mystery religions, of which the worship of Dionysius was one. And so as they did that, they were confused with a counterfeit spirituality. In Ephesus, they had a similar counterfeit spirituality, and they thought that that, that wine was the means to spirituality, as it was with the, with the worship of Dionysius, which is why Paul says, don't be drunk with wine or by means of wine, which is excess. In other words, wine isn't the path to spirituality. In contrast to that, be filled by means of the Spirit. It's not an illustration or metaphor of control because the grammar talks about the means of spirituality, the means of getting close to God. It's not through the means of wine. It is through the means of God the Holy Spirit. So these terms all relate ultimately and did relate to the worship of the uh, gods and goddesses in the mystery religions. And, of course, that's what the last term describes is idolatry, which sounds like this word. It's idolatria, the service of idols or the worship of idols. So let's work our way through this little group. It's kind of interesting to look at these words. The term lewdness, as it's translated in the uh, New King James Version, is a term that is a little bit antiquated. Okay, it is antiquated, and it is not a term that everybody understands, although it is still used in legal language. In fact, today I read, ran across a story where someone was accused of public lewdness. So what exactly is public lewdness? Well, this is an interesting word. Uh, the Greek word is aselgeia. Aselgeia, and it's kind of the simple translation is sensuality, but it's translated with a lot of different English words. The NET Bible uses uh, the term debauchery. Now, I don't know about you, but debauchery brings to mind a drunken uh, party, often something like an orgy and with an overtone of sexuality. That is not quite what this uh, depicts, although it is would be part of that scenario. Uh, other translations, English translations, use uh, abandon, uh, not quite on target, or sensuality, which gets closer, or licentiousness, which takes you a little bit beyond. I remember not long ago someone was here, and um, turned to somebody else when I used that word and said, what in the world is licentiousness? Come, it's like our word license. 
It is thinking that you just have a license to sin, to do whatever you want to do. It doesn't really matter. Sometimes Christians get the idea that if Christ has already paid for our sins and we're already forgiven of our sins, as I taught on Sunday morning, that if Christ paid and we're forgiven and sins are no longer the issue, then let's go have a party. Let's sin. We'll confess our sins. Everything's good. But feed those sins still war against the soul. And there are consequences to those sins, even though when we confess them, we're forgiven. Uh, we don't lose our salvation, it, um, but, but it will certainly make it more difficult and have problems and develop other consequences in our soul. It's a term that's used to describe the homosexuality and perversion of sex that occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah in passages such as Second uh, Peter uh, 2, 7 describes this, as we'll see going through the study. It describes the pagan world generally, or the behavior of the Gentiles that the Ephesian believers used to be part of. Now, they're Gentiles, but they used to live like the Gentile culture, okay, as opposed to the Jewish Orthodox culture. Ephesians 4.19 talks about that. If you do a word study, it's also related to heresy and apostasy. So it has a broad meaning. BDAG, which is the main dictionary for, for Greek studies, it's the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich. This is the third edition. It talks about a lack of self-constraint which involves uh, a person, involves one in conduct, that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable, self-abandonment suggesting licentiously uh, for the translation here. Then goes on to use terms like unbridled lust, excess, but it always has these tones of excess in sexuality. Uh, licentiousness, lasciviousness is also, it's a mentality that leads to overt sexual sin. Wantonness also related to a lack of uh, restraint or constraint in the area of sexuality. Um, this is the era in which we live. We just have to think back a few months ago to think about the various scandals that have erupted in Hollywood, learning about all manner of directors and producers and stars who use their positions of power and influence to, uh, in some cases, rape, in other cases to force uh, or, into, or forcefully seduce. Let me use that term. may not have bordered on rape, but it was to forcefully seduce uh, or threaten in some way, just the, the threat, the idea that it, they would lose a job, not be accepted for a role, would put that pressure on a on a woman and sometimes a man. I mean, we're not hearing much yet, but the male-on-male -male, uh, abuse here is prevalent in Hollywood as well as the female-on-male. Uh, we haven't heard much about it. There's a little bit of that, but men are less willing to come forward. It, 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 it's a real threat to their sense of masculinity and their male ego to say, yeah, this woman really pressured me that I had to uh, engage in sex with her or I wouldn't get the role. Uh, women, I think, realize that and they, they can come together, but it's harder for a man to come out and do that. All of this is involved in this concept of asogeia, it is a it is overt sin that uh, that leads to even greater uh, sexual sin. Thought this was interesting. The concise Oxford English Dictionary defines lewd. Lewdness is an describes a quality of being lewd. It describes lewd as something that is crude or offensive in a sexual way. Really gets down to the core meaning something crude or, excess, or offensive in a sexual way that is an enticement to illicit sexual activity. The old English word, not sure how it's pronounced, but it looks like it's lewida, 
comes from the root word that where we get our word laity, the lay person. How many times do you hear the church described or defined as the clergy and the laity? I've always had a problem with that. It's come to mean there are those who do something professionally and those that do something they're not professional, not necessarily trained. But it's really not a uh, a, uh, uh, a compliment because it belong it has the, that which belongs to the laity are related to that which is the common people are the vulgar people. They're uneducated. They are not taught. They're not trained. They're ill mannered. They are not uh, disciplined. They have uh, no self-discipline whatsoever. And that's the idea of where laity comes from. And the root for laity is the root for lewdness. It's just that which is, which is common and crude and offensive in a sexual way. The Collins English Dictionary says that, first of all, it's something that is characterized by or intended to excite crude sexual desire. It's, it's, that's the whole idea of it. It's to, to entice somebody into uh, wrong sexual activity, to uh, get their hormones raging. And um, this is the basic idea of what lewdness is. Therefore, it is an overt sin related to actions that incite sexual desire, which leads to uh, further sexual sin and perversion, left off part of that definition. So we have it used in a number of different passages. So, for example, Galatians 5. Now, let's think about the context here in Galatians chapter 5. Verse I frequently reference here, critical verse for the spiritual life, is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, which is the topical thought for the rest of that chapter. Paul says, I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk by means of the Spirit. That is the way in which we live our life. We walk by means of God the Holy Spirit who empowers us. But when we sin, when we stop walking by the Spirit, the default shift goes to the sin nature. And then we are fulfilling the desire, that's the word that we'll study next, the lust, of the flesh. Now, <clears throat> skipping a couple of verses, Paul wants us to make sure we understand how a life that is that is how a life walking by the flesh is is characterized, what the evidence is. And on the other side, the evidence of those who are walking by the spirit. So he says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. And then he begins to list these deeds. And the first four that he lists are the first three, or the first four, actually, are all sexual in nature. Adultery, which is uh, a sexual sin where the people are married but not to each other, or at least one is married but not to the person they are having sexual relations with. Fornication is when the two people are not married and having sexual relations Uncleanness has to do with that which is sexually impure. So that would imply, and it's used in other passages, that the homosexual relations, all homosexuality is a sin. It's a sexual sin like adultery, like fornication. It's not a separate category of, of sin. It's not a uh, worse form of sin in some ways. And some ways, some sins are worse than others simply because of the consequences they bring about. But these are all sexual sins. And the third one is lewdness, and that is activity that is designed to entice one to further sexual sin and perversion. So that's the work of the flesh. It is a product of our sin nature. It's listed again in Romans 13.13, 13. again, a passage talking about the characteristics of the spiritual life. Paul says, let us walk. Notice this concept that we keep running through in our passage, walking, describing the, the, the spiritual life step by step. Walking by the Spirit is described here as properly. That is in accordance with the what has been taught about the role of God, the Holy Spirit. And then he says, not 
So he defines it by way of negatives, not in revelry, same word as carousing, or drunkenness, same word we have over in First uh, Peter four three, not in lewdness and lust. Okay, you have lewdness; it's the same word in lust. These are all the same words, so parallel. Again and again, these types of sins are warned against, and are, the believer is not to engage in them. Ephesians 4, now this is a great passage. If you can, just turn there, and we'll just talk about it just a little bit. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, just because this will kind of thrill one or two of you, scare four or five of you, but... In another five or six months, maybe shorter, we're going to run out of chapters in Matthew. Have you thought about that? We're in Matthew 27. There's only 28 chapters. You know, six, eight, ten weeks. I've got to find something else to do. I've been thinking about Ephesians. Okay? I think Ephesians is a great book for every believer. Ephesians is a doct- doctrine. This is what we have in Christ, chapters 1 through 3. And chapters 4 through 6, because of what we have in Christ, this is how we're to live. And the key word in 4, 5, and 6 is walk, 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 walk. It's all about the Christian lifestyle, so it's, uh, it's great. Paul never heard of the fact that every sermon needs to be about walking. That is practical. He wants to make sure you understand the basis for why we live the way we live. And so he spends three chapters on that before he starts talking about what that means in terms of application. He would never have made it uh, on the screen as a televangelist. He would never have built a large church. He wouldn't be like these uh, uh, church growth people because he doesn't simplify things down to 10 points on how you can do X, Y, or Z and have a five-message series and then move on to the next. He would have had a small church somewhere that would have changed the culture. So in chapter 4 of Ephesians, we're talking about what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called in Ephesians 4.1. When we get down to verse 7, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. So he's saying, Lord taught the same thing. I'm not changing anything. That you no longer, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. That's, excuse me, that's the New American Standard. The New King James says that you no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. I think that catches part of what's going on here. They're still Gentiles ethnically, but they're new creatures in Christ, identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So there's no longer a distinction spiritually between them and Jews. That's described in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. So he says that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles, That means there's a large group of Gentiles. They're also Gentiles. The rest of the Gentiles are pagan. So that tells us that the word Gentile is not a synonym for being an unbeliever. But most of the Gentiles are pagan. So he says, don't walk in the emptiness, the matayotes, the futility, the emptiness of their thinking. See, you can read all of the great philosophers, and it's just emptiness. It's not going to give you that rich, robust sense of life and purpose and significance that Adam and Eve had before the fall. Now, afterwards, you pursue human, human viewpoint, and it just leads to emptiness of the mind. That is how the lusts of the flesh war against the soul. And destroy it because they destroy its me. It's still there. They don't annihilate it. They warp it. They distort it. They create a uh, a darkness in the soul. And this is what Paul goes on to say in verse 18. Having their understanding, that's the mentality of the soul darkened, because they have been alienated from the life of God. They're spiritually dead. There's no life in them. They're born dead. 
but they still have a semblance of biological life, but they're spiritually dead. They are ignorant. No matter how bright they may be, no matter how many PhDs they might have, they are ignorant because of the blindness of their heart. Heart is a term for the mentality of the soul. They are blind in their mind. Who being past feeling, because they have... um, created a, a, a callus on their soul so their, their, no, their conscience has been seared. Their past feeling having given themselves over to lewdness, this, this overt sin where they're just focused on sexual pleasure. That characterizes so much of our culture. Everything they think about, their heartbeat day in and day out is driven by sexual lust. So they've given themselves over to this lust to try to entice people. And that what characterizes so many, it's, it's tragic to look at from the halls of power in Washington, D.C., to the halls of power in corporate America, that men and women, mostly men, but women also, use their position of power in order to fulfill their sexual lust as it's directed towards those for whom they are responsible. And that is not new in America. It's not new in the 21st century or the 20th century. It goes back to the Roman Empire. It goes back to the Greek Empire before that and the Persians before that and all the way back to, to Noah and the culture before the flood. They give themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, that's interesting because in the parallel passage in Colossians, Paul says greed, which amounts to idolatry, that is the worship of money and the things that money can buy, is another form of idolatry. It's not worshiping a wood, stone, or metal metal object in the shape of a bird, in the shape of a human, but it is worshiping uh, money and the things that money can buy, something in the creation. So that's idolatry. So he connects here this idea of lewdness to the worship of money and the things that money can buy. It's all connected in the matrix of your nasty little sin nature. First, Second Corinthians 12.21 So there, Paul says that he's talking to them, and he's been talking to them about the sins that have characterized them. 1 Corinthians, he had to really blast them. 2 Corinthians, he had to come back and make... uh, They had responded in some ways. They had made errors in other ways. So in 1221, uh, Paul is going to be concluding this, this epistle. And he talks about that he's going to be coming back to Corinth. And he says, I'm afraid that when I come again, uh, my God may humiliate me before me, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past, who have sinned before in the New King James, and have not repented. They're continuing in the Corinthian carnality as described in 1 Corinthians. Uh, others... And the word there is using is metanoeo, not metamelamai. In chapter 5, there's this interchange where it goes back and forth. Metamelamai is just emotional sin. I mean, emotional repentance. You're, you're just all caught up. I got caught. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose everything I have. I just feel terrible. But like a dog returns to its vomit, and that's a metaphor that Peter will use coming up, like in, in Second Peter, you just go right back to the sin because there's no true change of mind. That's metanoeo, a change of thinking which takes you to the Lord and to walk by the Spirit, the only th- way there can be transformation. So he'll come and he'll find those who sinned before and haven't changed their mind. They haven't responded to the teaching of the Word, and they continue in uncleanness and fornication and lewdness, which they have practiced. And he's talking about Christians. 
He's not talking about the non-Christians in the Corinthian culture. He's talking about the believers who haven't submitted to the word of God. Because Christians can do these things. And Christians can do them and probably do them better than unbelievers can. Doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means they're not learning the word and applying it and walking by the spirit. They're walking according to their sin nature. Now, the second term, going back to Peter, the second term that Peter uses is the word that is normally translated lust. It is the word epithemia, or ep, yeah, epithemia. And epithemia just basically means a desire for something. And we can desire things in different levels of intensity. Some, it's pretty basic. We just want something, and that's okay, but it doesn't capture our interest and our imagination. It doesn't become part of our drive that that will make life work for us. But other lusts become an intense craving that we think its satisfaction will bring us happiness and meaning and purpose in life. Uh, It usually has this idea of a desire for something that's forbidden or simply inordinate. Uh, that is how uh, BDAG translates it. Uh, one writer says the term lust is used in 4.2 so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh that's in the body no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. Lusts of men just as a general sense of term uh, describing the whole uh, realm of, of desires that motivate sin. In 4.3, it probably refers more specifically to uh, excessive indulgences, drives, especially in relation to sex and sexual gratification that fits within the structure of these other words that are being, uh, being used here. Romans 6.12 is interesting. There, Paul tells us, therefore, do not let sin reign. Don't let sin control your body. That you should obey it in its lust. You don't have to obey your lust patterns. You can say no. And you ought to say no, because otherwise the lust will war against your soul. So Paul uh, states that, and just prior to this, in Romans chapter 6, which is the great foundational chapter for, um, for the spiritual life, in verse 11 he says, Even so, consider legizomai, which means to think it through logically, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. You are dead to sin. That means that you are separating yourself from the power of the sin nature. But you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will obey its lusts. The solution is given there as well as repeated in the application chapter of Romans 13, which I mentioned already as we were talking about Asogeia. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. How many of y'all think that's a salvation verse? Don't raise your hands. Can anybody here tell me of a famous person in church history who was saved when he read that verse? Augustine. Fifth century. Early, or fourth century. Yeah, early fifth century. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. He was in great turmoil of soul, and he is up, I believe he was in Milan, and he is sitting in a courtyard, and he said he heard a voice that said, take up and read, and he picked up his Bible, and he opened it. There was this verse, and he read it, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he trusted Christ as his Savior. It's amazing how God the Holy Spirit at times will use a lot of verses that don't have anything to do with salvation just to really nail somebody. And so many people justify bad hermeneutics on that basis. But uh, sometimes I've always wanted to go through and preach a series on how people got saved by verses that have nothing to do with salvation because God can do it. But that doesn't justify our mishandling of the Scripture. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a synonym for walking by the Spirit, putting on the character of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and we do that by the Holy Spirit, and make no provision for the flesh. Don't make an opportunity to fulfill your fleshly desires, is the command there. Ephesians 4.22, back to the passage we were just talking about, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, that is not the sin nature, but everything you were before you were saved, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. That's how lusts war against the soul. They deceive your mind into thinking about a false reality, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. No surprise then that it is also used over in Galatians chapter 5, 516, walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill that lust, that desire of the of the flesh. And Galatians 5:17, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That doesn't mean it doesn't still bother you. It means that its power is broken. That's Romans chapter 6. So there are these various lusts, Colossians uh, 3, 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. We just talked about that in in Ephesians, that these are connected together. So we are to separate from these things. That's not legalism, because we're not doing it to impress God. We're not doing it to get salvation. We're doing that because we are to live differently from others. We're to be holy because God is holy. We're to live in a way that uh, can, we can serve God, and we're qualified to serve God. Now, the third characteristic that's listed here is the word oina from wine, uh, flugia, and it means drunkenness, somebody who gives themselves over to wine and is a, a drunk. Alcoholism, it really isn't a disease, not like cancer is a disease or leukemia is a disease or the flu is a disease or a sinus infection is a disease. Don't be taken in by the deception. See, what the world does is they deny total depravity. They deny the reality of sin. They assume man is basically good. And if man is basically good, then it's not really our volition that took us to this place. It is something that happened to us. And so we're a victim. We're a victim of this disease. We just caught it. And you just were born with this. It's not really your fault. You were born homosexual. You were born with this alcoholism. Now, I believe that we have different genetic trends that we inherit biologically. You remember many times the sin is related to the flesh, to the body of sin. These are terms that are used in Scripture. So we have different inclinations. But our volition is what matters. We're responsible. We don't just catch alcoholism. Oops, look what I've got. I've got to go find a pill for it. I remember back in the late 90s when uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is sort of the mother of all the different 10-step programs, was celebrating their, uh, I think it was their 75th anniversary, something of that nature, and they were talking about it, and I was surprised watching news. And they, news shows in the morning used to be more objective. Now they're just shills for socialism and Marxism and for f- fake news. But back then they were honest, and they pointed out, and it shocked me. I had no idea that Alcoholics Anonymous had a success rate of 17%. We think about that. 17%. And I've looked it up since then. They will claim now it's somewhere between 17 and 30%. But that's pretty pathetic. That's, that's a lower success rate than the flu shot for this flu epidemic we're having right now. See, the issue is always sin. If you don't define the real problem, see, the real problem in America right now isn't a gun problem. It's a heart problem. The heart is deceptive and deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. 
It is because we don't teach manners. We don't teach discipline. We don't teach uh, virtue and integrity. We don't teach our children how to control their emotions as they grow up. And we let them live out their lusts that have warred against their soul and destroyed their souls. You're not going to solve that. You can lock up every gun in the in the country, and that's not going to stop it. Because the problem isn't the guns. The problem isn't the law. The problem isn't a lack of law enforcement. The problem ultimately is a lack of self-control, and it's a lack of spirituality. There's a huge difference. In fact, I heard a local a talk show host uh, commenting on something. He was started to have a conversation, I think, with one of his producers or staff guys in the in the studio. And he said, hey, we got a guy here that used to take guns to school. So-and-so here tells me that back in the around 1966, when he graduated from Bel Air High School, I started Bel Air in 67, that the, the, the guys would often take their guns to school. Some of you may remember that. I remember going to school, and you'd see some guy pull up. He'd have his pickup truck, and he'd have a Winchester 3030 or a shotgun or something like that on a gun rack in the back of his pickup truck. He would leave it in the school parking lot, usually unlocked, because nobody would open it and take the gun. And he didn't take the gun out and start shooting people. And there were a lot of people who did that. And we carried pocket knives to school and all kinds of things. Why weren't we shooting everybody and stabbing everybody? Because we, had a, we were taught morality. We were taught right from wrong. We were reared in a school system that graded us on self-discipline from the time we were in kindergarten. We had parents that infused those values in us. And because it was a culture that still allowed God in the classroom, prayer in the classroom, we understood that there was something greater than man. And there were restraints built into the fabric of human society. And they weren't, fa- they weren't laws. There was a change of character. And once we got away from God, and once we got away from the Bible, and once we went through the sexual, uh, self-absorbed, me-generation uh, perversion of the baby boom generation in the 60s and 70s, where everybody just threw off all restraint and did whatever they wanted to do, that is when you started to see these mass shootings. That is when it really began to happen. And it's directly related not to the presence of guns in the culture. It is related to the presence of unrestrained sin in the culture and not being able to teach and preach in every location the truth of the gospel. So this is what is happening. Uh, Drunkenness, that people deaden the pain of spiritual death that the the absence of life that Adam and Eve realized they had, so that you deaden it with alcohol or drugs or marijuana or cocaine or anything to give you pleasure. Pleasure is a form of lust, to deaden that pain of being spiritually dead. Fourth thing that is mentioned by Peter is carousing. This word komos is only used three times in the New Testament. It's used here in our passage in 1 Peter 4.3, and it's used in uh, Romans 13.13 in a sense of of revelry. And in Galatians 5.21, also translated revelries. These were not just drinking parties. They went beyond that, and often they were related to the worship of the um, fertility gods, the sexually related gods, uh, Dionysius, Venus, Aphrodite, uh, these gods and goddesses in the Greek, in the Greek system. They were accompanied five by potas, which is used, this is the only time in the New Testament it's used, and it's a drinking party. Again, often related to some sort of religious worship, which is the sixth category, which is idolatry. Idolatria, the worship, latria, service of an idol. 
And it is um, a Greek word for abominable, which is used by Peter in both this verse and in Acts 10.28, includes all kinds of idolatrous acts that were associated with that. All of the sexual acts were played out in front of these fertility gods to try to motivate them to make the crops uh, fecund and productive so that it was just the early form of the prosperity gospel that you hear from so many pulpits today uh, that we can somehow manipulate the gods into making us prosperous Jews in places like 1 Corinthians ten fourteen, where Paul says to flee from idolatry it's part of that list of the works of the flesh in Galatians five twenty. following the list of sexual sins. It then goes to idolatry, similar order to what we have in First Peter uh, four three. Colossians three five also describes it in relation to materialism, lust, and money lust, covetousness, which is idolatry. So we'll stop there because 1 Peter 4 goes on, says in regard to these, that is these sins, they think it's strange that you don't run with them, that you don't go along with them in all these sins. They're having a good time. They think they're having a great time. And so now because you won't join them in their dissipation, they're going to start running you down and bad-mouthing you. And so you will be accused of all kinds of things including being including mental illness because you don't want to run in their party. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for the fact that we are have a scripture that makes it clear what the real problem is, that the problem is sin, but makes it clear what the real solution is, and that isn't just pulling ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps, but by trusting in Jesus, trusting in the provision of the promises of your word, starting with regeneration where we become a new creature in Christ by simply trusting in Christ as our Savior, and then you make us a new creature in him, identifying us with his death, burial, and resurrection so that we are able now to not yield to the sins of the, or not yield to the power of the sin nature. Father, we pray that you might challenge us with the great provisions that we have and the hope that we have in Christ and what we will have that will make us, uh, make us productive in our spiritual life and not yield to the uh, lust and the temptations of the sin nature that war against our soul and lead to, lead to self-destruction. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.